0: Welcome, my friends. We have a true legend on the show today. Our guest is the grave dancer himself, Sam Zell, chairman of Equity Group Investments, a private firm he founded more than 50 years ago. Sam's thought to be the most successful real estate investor of all time, the man known for his enormous success in popularizing the REIT structure that's commonplace today. He's also been a successful investor in areas like energy, logistics, and healthcare. We don't get into Sam's fascinating background, but I'll point you to a wonderful interview with Tim Ferriss. We'll add a link in the show notes or check out Sam's book as well. Today's episode, though, starts off with Sam's take on the withdrawal limits and gating for private REITs over the past few months from the lens of his, quote, liquidity equals value. He shares his view on different areas of the real estate market, why he's been a net seller for almost eight years now, and some of the lessons from him being a constant dealmaker during his career. As we wind down, Sam shares some advice for President Biden on how to help the economy, how to encourage more entrepreneurship in the U.S., and I promise you don't want to miss his most memorable investment. Please enjoy this episode with the legendary Sam Zell. Sam, welcome to the
1: show. Thank you.
0: You talk a lot about a couple topics that really permeate, I feel like, a lot of themes, one of which is this concept of liquidity and value. And I got an email today or a headline. It was talking about liquidity, particularly in your world, with Blackstone, a company I know you've spent a lot of time dealing with, but thinking about re- liquidity with their real estate offering and getting gated. You've been around since the beginnings of you know kind of the development of the REIT industry. How do you think about you know REITs today, 2023 as an asset class?
1: When Blackstone or or uh... Starwood or somebody else creates a, quote, non-traded REIT. As far as I'm concerned, the word non-traded means no price discovery. You know, you can't, and and it's evidenced by the fact that, you know, for a while there, you know, Blackstone couldn't get out of their way uh, with the amount of money that was pouring in, in the same manner, uh, they couldn't get out of their way with the amount of money started pouring out, and they were forced to gate you know, their fund. Real estate, by definition, unless it's in a publicly traded vehicle with significant liquidity, is an illiquid instrument. Now, there's nothing wrong with investing in illiquid instruments as long as you understand that it's illiquid. But I would suggest to you and probably believe I'm right, that the majority of the people who invested in these non-traded REITs didn't really understand what it meant. And what they liked the most about it was that they got their monthly report from their broker and the number never changed. So therefore, they didn't lose money. But that's uh, you know not very realistic and you know, and that likely to perpetuate for very long. And so it wasn't any big surprise that the non-traded REIT world became gated uh, as the hedge fund world becomes gated when there's a loss of liquidity.
0: Yeah, you know, um, nothing triggered me over the years more than you see some of the marketing materials and people will talk about some of these interval funds that only mark maybe in their head once a year, once a quarter. And they say, you know, we have 4% volatility. And I say, that's funny because all of your assets are, you know, the the public equivalents are 20% volatility. So this magic transformation, creating something that's extremely low vol out of something that, you know, probably isn't. So, you know, as you've seen all this money flow in on kind of the various offerings, REITs, but also, you know, the public vehicles, interval funds, everything else in between. And you still have the same old story of of liquidity mismatch. People get upside down, just saw it with Silicon Valley Bank, you know, that it creates stressors. Is that creating any opportunities yet? Do you think? Is it something that is just kind of the, you know, there's always opportunities, but, but I'm just trying to think in my head, like these giant passive vehicles that are just getting bigger and bigger?
1: I think that so far in the real estate space, I don't think there's been much opportunity created. And frankly, the opportunities won't get created until the regulators force everybody to market. In 73, 74, and 91, 92, what created the opportunities was that the regulators came in and said, you gotta to mark to market. And once you mark to market, the values changed dramatically and it created opportunities for people to participate in the downside of of, of a particular scenario.
0: Yeah. You know, I like your quote where you say liquidity equals value, and so thinking about real estate in particular, but going through some of these cycles, seventy early seventies uh, is such a good example because I always I, I'm a, I'm a quant, so I love looking at historical returns, and we've even tried to model quote simulated you know reits back to nineteen hundreds, and depending on where you start, you know if you start mid seventies, it looks different than if you started nineteen seventy, <laughs> and same thing with people like. Start something for the prior 10 years versus back to 2000. You know, you pick up different downturns. But one of the things I wanted to ask you that I think is interesting to me so I'm 45. The vast majority of my generation, even plus another 10, 20 years, has largely existed during one kind of macro regime. 1980s, 90s, 2000, 2010s has been a world in the US of interest rates declining. And really until a couple of years ago, and all of a sudden an inflation decline. Right. And so you had, you know, participated in a couple market cycles, you know, before that, the 60s and 70s coming out of Michigan. How unprepared, or I like to think of everyone who's managing money today and the kind of kind of their meat of their career really never experienced that environment. That's correct. What, what what do you think do you think that has implications do you see that as creating any sort of opportunities or structures like because it seems to be like we we've are now in a, an environment that's very unfamiliar for people who've been doing it for even 10 20 30 years
1: yeah i think that you know i have the benefit or the burden your choice of words of having played in both serene both scenarios you know in the 70s uh You know, I I remember closing a loan in 1978 on the same day as the government uh, produced an inflation rate of 13.3%. 13% inflation is a, a frightening idea and a frightening number. But that was de rigueur in that period of time. And consequently, you had to operate and prepare and channel your capital to reflect the fact that, you know, a 13% inflation rate was not out of hand and was certainly possible. And you had, as an investor, had to be prepared to pivot to reflect that.
0: Yeah, at least it seems like it's kind of coming down here in the US, Europe, who has a long history, painful history with inflation is seeing some numbers. that are getting perilously close to kind of that double-digit level you're referencing. Now, doesn't mean great businesses don't get started and there's plenty of good investing opportunities. It just means it's different. And so how does that play into kind of how you look? I know you do more than just real estate today, but you're, you'll are be forever known as a real estate first guy. What does the real estate world look like to you today? We could start with commercial, but really anything in general. Is it a land of opportunity? Is this sort of inflation interest rates coming up really fast? Is it creating problems that we just haven't seen yet? What's What's the world look
1: like? Well, let's see if I can break down your questions in some pieces. There's very little doubt in my mind that the inflationary pressures in real estate are significant and have, you know, dramatically altered some prognostications. So the guy who four years ago took out a bullet loan, they came, you know, at 4% 4% or 3% and it comes due next February, he's in a whole lot of trouble because he's basically seen the value drop by 30 or 40% as the cost of capital has doubled. So I think that the this, this unknown amount of unplanned refinancing that has to take place is going to potentially create some mark to market and some real challenges. As far as the overall real estate market is concerned, I've been a seller for probably seven or eight years, except for a few examples in our public companies. Most everything we've done has been done with the objective of liquidating our positions because we couldn't justify the prices that were being paid for existing real estate. I mean, in some cases, like office buildings and retail, a serious challenge as to what real value is. I mean, what's the demand for office space going forward? I don't know the answer to that, but I don't want to be in front of the train that finds out. In the same manner, the online retail you know, that it was a non-existent 10 years ago now represents 13 or 14% of all retail sales. Well, those retail sales are coming out of real estate. And what's the impact of that? And how do you as an investor adjust for that kind of a thing? I mean, you know, here in Chicago, 25% of Michigan Avenue, which was the number one, uh, retail space in the city, is vacant. Go to Madison Avenue, New York, and and take Madison from 52nd to 83rd, and the amount of vacancy is, is alarming. I think you have the same situation in parts of L.A. So I think that uh, you know we're living through a, a pretty serious adjustment. At the same time, the demo space, the warehouse space, continues to be in very short supply. So what you've seen is like on a seesaw, you've seen you know retail and office go down and you know warehouse and demo go up. And of course the same thing is true in the residential space. Now the residential space is compounded by the fact that you know we've allowed not in my backyard to become a calling card for you know, impairing development. As long as we continue to impair development, we're gonna have shortages. Number of people you know, being added to the population is not being met by the housing creation. And that's because we've made it so difficult and so expensive to add to the housing supply.
0: As I hear you talk, I mean, I was was thinking back, one of the challenges I have is is being a quant is looking back historically and understanding where they were very real, meaningful sort of structural changes in markets. And so you mentioned too, certainly the post-COVID work from home world, which feels very real and, you know, in running my own company, but seeing other companies and friends too, something that just doesn't flip a switch and go back. And then two, Online for retail and other, you know, sort of trends. Are there any? Are are those kind of like when you look back your career in real estate? Um, are are there any others that really stand out as being like there was a moment that really flipped or before and after it could be government, you know, induced legislation. It could be tax rates. It could be anything. What are some of the most impactful sort of before after macro?
1: Start with the nineteen eighty six tax bill that all of a sudden changed real estate and took away the tax benefits. I mean, it used to be, prior to the early 80s, tax benefits came with real estate as a way of compensating you for lack of liquidity. By the time we reached the mid-80s, deals were being priced at X plus the value of the tax benefits. So, in effect, the real value was being decreased for something that was maybe or maybe not you know relevant in the same manner I mean you think about the you know the changes that have occurred uh, I mean I tell people that when I got out of school or when I was in in college the number if you went outside of the major cities there were no apartments. there were primarily single-family homes. And then all of a sudden, we had a a huge rush of apartments. Initially, very successful. Subsequently, as always is in the case, oversupply. And today, we're probably closer to balance. Although, I'll tell you, from an affordability point of view, we definitely have a shortage of housing. But again... How do we create an affordability problem? By creating regulation, by creating that in my backyard, by creating an environment where land became like an accordion. And when, you know, demand was high, the accordion, you know, expanded, increasing the value of land and vice versa. Well, that had a a dramatic impact, the availability of multifamily housing.
0: Yes. Listening to you talk about this is is, is fun because um, thinking about the various changes. So I was an engineer, and I think the only econ class I took was Econ 101. And I heard you talking about supply and demand, and you mentioned a similar thing. It was like, like the I think the only thing I got out of the, this course other than my professor always had the prettiest TAs in the world. That was like what he was known for. If you're if you went to Virginia, you know what I'm talking about. But this very concept of supply and demand which seems to just, you know, permeate everything, right? It's such a basic um concept. But but thinking back to like, you know, your time when you got started, one of the insights was, "Hey, I'm going to I'm looking into it's like the classic, you know, fishing, not on the main pond, but somewhere, you know, so like the, not San Fran, New York, but maybe Ann Arbor, other places. How much do you think at this time, this day and age, that's become commoditized? Meaning like if Sam's, you know, coming out of Michigan today and he's thinking about real estate in particular, but, but applies to kind of everything. Do you think that the similar um, takeaways from that concept is, is valid as far as opportunity? And where would you look? Where would Sam of today get started?
1: I'm not sure I know where Sam would get get started today. But what you're talking about is what I refer to as the HP-12 factor. Somewhere around 1980, Hewlett-Packard invented the HP-12. That meant that you could sit there in your office and you could do a 10-year analysis of a projection of a property and reach some conclusions. The result of which is that the commercial real estate market in the United States went from a very local market to a very national market. And so you could be sitting in uh, Chicago, and and somebody could give you numbers on a, on a on a real estate project in Reno, and you could you could use that as a base. For deciding whether that was an attractive market or not, and once you've done that, if you felt it was attractive, you can go look at it. Prior to that, you just didn't have the kind of information or the kind of putting together of information that allows you to reach conclusions. One more question
0: on the macro, and then I, then then maybe we'll hop over to the micro. You know, I think one of the challenges as we wade through this period of one with you know higher inflation that may or may not be coming down. My guess is it's gonna be a little stickier, but who knows. And every once in a while you start to have the news cycle get dominated with with things like the Fed, right? Like what are they doing? What's going on? Because it does have a massive impact. And we've seen over the past few years, rightfully, wrongfully, people make decisions and then you know things change and they get into big trouble so silicon valley bank being the most obvious one recently but maybe some more bodies floating to the surface we'll see soon how do you think about the risks of the current environment we talk about rates we talk about inflation does this create a fair amount of let's say biden listens to you on the meb favorite show says sam love listening to you on the podcast give me some advice what should we be doing here in washington to kind of smooth things out a bit you got any good ideas for us what would you say
1: I'd say stop spending money you don't have. There's nothing more basic and nothing more deteriorating to value than inflation. Inflation is caused by too much money chasing too few opportunities.
0: Yeah, it's particularly hard if you don't put assets to work too, right? You know, cash under the mattress. We did a poll just on our, our Twitter followers who most or professional investors. And I said, you know, everyone spends all day thinking about investing. What's the best investment? It's time to buy gold, it's it time to sell stocks, whatever. And then I said, how much are you earning on your cash balance? And you know, the vast majority said, either I don't know or zero. Right. And I said, well, we live in a world today where you can get four. And in a world of plus four inflation, um, if you're at zero, that that's a, a pretty quick erosion. Let's kind of narrow it a little bit. You know, you've done, man, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of deals in your lifetime. A lot. A lot. I have a quote from you where you said, you know, I was listening to you and you said, everything comes down to the deal. So yes, we can talk about the macro and hey, real estate looks good, real estate looks bad, but really it comes down to the actual investment you're making.
1: People are constantly asking me the question, what market do you want to invest in? or what trends are you following? From my perspective, trends and markets and all of that stuff is very interesting. But you can have a bad deal in a hot market. You can have a good deal in a cold market. And it all comes down to what are the opportunities that that particular situation creates and what are the circumstances that you can bring to influence how you do.
0: That's so spot on. You know, we talk like there's a lot of startup investors and you talk about some of the downtimes, the big bear markets, and let's say some of the best companies were founded during Uber, Google, were founded during the downturns.
1: Some of the best deals I ever made occurred during periods uh, when, you know, there was stress.
0: So speaking of stress, speaking of risk, which you talk about a lot, how do you think about it today? You know, I mean, and, and this may have changed over the years, and feel free to say if it has, but as you think about, you know, deals crossing your plate, you think about risk, evaluating it. What are the main things that come to mind today after a career at it, and what's changed on your risk uh, management scorecard when you look at deals today?
1: I don't really think a lot has changed on my risk scorecard. I love to quote Bernard Baruch, who, as you know, what? Uh, survived the depression by selling out before the market crashed. And his famous quote was, nobody ever went broke making a profit. In the same manner, my focus has always been on the downside. My focus has always been, how bad can it get? What are the variables that might change where I stand? So I focus on how bad it can get, what I can do to make it better, but always on the downside. Because if I protected the downside, I can survive if the upside gets too good.
0: Yeah. One of the benefits of looking back to history, you talk about the depression. Listeners, uh, if you didn't live through it, which is nearly all of us, there's a great book called The Great Depression, A Diary by Benjamin Roth. But it's a real time. It's a lawyer And he talks a lot about investing and he kind of, it's a real-time diary of his experience then. And it's crazy to think about. And you think about stocks that declined 80% plus and everything else that happened. But the benefit to me of looking back through history is at least it gives you a anchor or framework to at least remember, understand what's possible or what has at least happened in the past and realize it's going to be even weirder in the future. But at least it's crazy volatile enough in the past, which I think is, is way more than people think when they think about, you know, investments and the possibilities.
1: Just think about how much the market went down in the Great Recession, you know, of of 07, 08, and 09. I mean, we saw 70 and 80% reduction in valuations. Those are things that you tell your children about, but you don't live through. But we live through it just like we lived through similar destructions of value in previous eras.
0: One of the things about 8 09, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, is it was a market environment that the vast majority of people managing money going into 8 09 had never been around. It's very similar, actually, to the Great Depression, right? It was this very deflationary environment where kind of everything went down, you know, except for the separate bonds, just about, but most, most everything went down. But we really hadn't seen something, at least certainly to that magnitude, too, in in a while. And I think it caught a lot of people off guard. But that's the good times ring complacency, right? (laughs) People get fat and happy. For someone who's uh, you mentioned, has done a lot of deals. And sort of like the challenge of the internet age, too, of just limitless information. You know, you could just spend infinite amount of time researching a company. How do you narrow it down to like the key elements, you know, in in deciding on like what the key elements are right for you? And I'm sure they're different on each one, but what's, I mean, what's that process like? Do you have, do you have any suggestions on that for the listeners?
1: Well, I I guess that what I would say is that the single most underrated and and misunderstood concept is competition. We all grow up and we take econ or we take, economics in grade school and and the teacher tells us how terrific competition is and how terrific competition is for you know uh, you know price discovery etc cetera, etc cetera. but the reality is there's nothing more frightening than competition uh, given my choice I would always have a monopoly rather than a competitive environment and so when I look at potential investments, whether it be in real estate or in other things, first question I ask is, what's the competition? Who's the competition? How is the competition financed? How does that finance compare to my financing? If things get tough, is the competition going to lower their prices to the point where they're going to destroy my value? So I think more than anything else, I begin and end by looking for barriers to entry. What is it that can protect me from uncontrolled competition? Whether it be a patent, whether it be a unique location, whether it be a unique structure, whatever, I don't know what it is, but when I look at businesses, whether it be real estate or otherwise, in terms of of making investments, I start with and end with, what is the competition gonna do to me? And what could it do to me? And if I were outside of this little prism, how would I attack it? Or could I attack it? And would it make sense to do so? But there is nothing more deleterious than competition. And there's nothing more you can misunderstand than how your competitor might respond to you.
0: Particularly in our world, as really well said, our world of asset management, it's hard too. And you have to think about this ahead of time of, you know, in a world of low interest rates and a lot of money sloshing around competition, also means these really giant, well-funded competitors. I joke about Vanguard a lot, who I love, but you know, anytime you get a T after your name for AUM for trillions, they have a lot more power to squeeze all the juice out of what they're doing. And-
1: We were just talking a few minutes ago about real estate and about the fact that, you know, I have not been a buyer for seven or eight years. It's all, it's real simple. There's been so much money, there's been so much liquidity, that the value or or pricing of assets, in my judgment, has gone beyond what makes sense for me. And so I've been a seller into that market. You know, about six years ago, we took over a public REIT that had $12 billion worth of assets called Commonwealth. It had 145 assets of which we've sold 141. I've sold 141 assets and I don't have one regret. I don't have one scenario where I said, God, I wish I could get that back. I know I don't want any of it back because people paid me. Prices that I just couldn't understand. And by the way, I think that's another part of the whole equation. Everything you do should be understandable. When it isn't understandable, when somebody is willing to make a long-term investment at 3% in an office building or an apartment project, I don't understand maybe they're right. So be it. But I don't understand. And where I don't understand, I don't put my money. The funny
0: thing about it, the older I get, and the more we kind of watch what's going on in markets in the world, a lot is driven by certainly career risks and incentives. So there's a lot of people out there that just like their mandate is they have to put money to work. And like, that's it, right? Other people's money. Other people's money. And so... But the funny thing is you look around and it, each year it's different. What sector? I mean, we had one of the worst years ever for 6040 last year. So one year it's real estate, one year it's commodities. I love the old chart of the tech sector versus energy over the past 40 years as a percentage of the S&P. And at one point, energy used to be almost a third of the S&P. A couple of years ago, it got to like two or three. It's not going to zero. And now it's up some. But you know, if you just kind of wait around long enough, it feels like Mr. Market eventually will deliver things down 50 or 70 or 90%. I mean, there's a lot of high-flying investments from really the twenty 2020, twenty 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 one, a lot of the SPACs market environment that are, that are sitting down 80, 90%. So a lot of it just feels like people are having to do action for the sake of action.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not a quant, nor do I want to be a quant, but you know, I've, I've always avoided getting too statistically involved. I think that, you know, you can make the numbers say whatever you want them to say. I'm a basic person. I mean, if I buy a building, the first thing I ask is, how much did it cost to build? Because if I pay too much, somebody else is going to be able to build across the street for less and compete with me so i start with you know basic valuations and don't allow myself to get caught up in the you know the fury of the of the common man
0: well the emotions i mean there's an old uh buffett munger quote where they were talking to say you know He's talking about uh, it's it's not fear and greed that drives market, but envy, which seems to be a lot during the bull market. Right. Part the envy part gets 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 sucks everyone in.
1: You go to a cocktail party and, you know, the guy standing next to you just uh, bought something or sold something or did something. And you say, gee, I wish I had done that. Well, gee, I wish I had done that, you know, can be very influential, but not necessarily productive.
0: How many times when you've made an investment over the years, when are, are you thinking of the exit or a potential exit when you enter in? So, hey, I'm going to buy this investment. This is like my margin of safety. Here's where it can possibly go wrong. But like once you make the investment, are you thinking in your head, you know, I would like to sell this at X, whether it's in three years, five years, or is this something I just plan on holding for an indefinite? Like, are you planning the exit when you make the entry?
1: I don't think that I ever make an investment without looking at exit. I don't think in terms of 3 to 5 years or 10 years or anything like that. I mean, you know, we like a year ago or a little over a year ago, we sold a company that we owned for 37 years. And we probably wouldn't have sold it if we didn't think that circumstances were changing and i didn't like the risk of being there through such a change so every single investment must have an exit i don't believe in calculating a pre-existing exit and frankly i think that uh, you know we have a, a lot of institutional investors who view opportunities as you know, six-year plays or ten-year plays or five-year plays. I'm not a good enough prognosticator to tell you what's gonna happen in five years, what's gonna happen in seven years. I do my evaluations every year, but I never ever forget that no investment is worthwhile unless you can exit.
0: Yeah. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Y Charts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. WhyCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. I mean, the, the, the reason we like to think through the construct on the entry, you know, we asked people, we said, you know, when you buy something do you at least think of sell criteria? And I said, it's important, not just for when things go south, right? So you buy something, whether it's a stock, whether it's a building, shit happens, it goes down. Like that's important to think through because you got to think of, you know, do you have liquidity? How are you going to get out? What's the downside? But also on the upside, like you make an investment and it's going amazing. Also, it's important because, you know, the people... You mentioned you you held something for 37 years, like the eventual 5, 10, 100 bagger was once a two bagger and it's easy to try to take the gains too. So the, the emotions on both sides can be tough if you don't think through it, I think.
1: What we haven't discussed is staying power because staying power is critically important to that kind of analysis. You may make an investment and it may not, initially appear to work the way you would expect it. That's acceptable if you have staying power and conviction. If you don't have staying power and if you don't have conviction, then immediate responses sell. And, uh, you know, I think the, a lot of mistakes have been made in the sales side as there have been on the buy side.
0: Yeah, and, you know, like we tell people, everyone who has a garage, you go out to garage and look at all the stuff in your garage too. There, there becomes an emotional attachment to things you own for better or for worse than before you own them. <laughs> and so it can, for a lot of people it can certainly disturb the logic of what they value something at and how, how, uh, how they'll get rid of it. Yeah. Sure. Which reminds me, I got to clean out my garage because I got a bunch of junk in there. I don't have a garage. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we renovated our house and I was like, we should have just cleaned house, started at zero with that thing and just gotten rid of everything. And and it's harder, easier said than done.
1: It's hard. To, <laughs> I mean, I have a list of investments that, you know, I should have gotten rid of years ago. You get attached to stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, Sam, I come from a farming family and there's only a couple farmland REITs. I was always surprised that more farmland REITs didn't get developed. As we look at like the global market portfolio of assets, you know, real estate, particularly single family housing, single family housing, ex u s and there's more opportunities now, but farmland are two of the bigger areas that are hard to access from the little guy. But farmland for me has always been that mm-hmm. asset that's like pain in the butt, and there's not <laughs> there hasn't been a whole lot of return on the farmland side, but I keep it for. Different reasons, which are mostly emotional.
1: (laughs) But the answer is that, you know, REITs and, and various vehicles that create, you know, assemblages of real estate are all really predicated on income. And the farmland world has had a great shortage of income. So even today, I mean, you have a couple of farmland public companies out there they're earning, you know, one and a half, 2% on the thesis that, well, it's food and it's inflation. And, but all of that is irrelevant when, you know, at the end of the year, you got one and a half percent on your money. And that, that doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: Let's bounce around a couple more quick questions. You've been gracious uh, sitting down with us this afternoon for a while. One of the questions we always ask the guests over the last couple of years and you got a lot to choose from. And this doesn't, I'm going to preface this by saying it doesn't necessarily mean the best or the worst or whatnot. We say, what has been your most memorable investment? So it could be good, it could be bad. But when I say it, it's just kind of seared in your brain of what is the most memorable. And you could say deal for you too. It could be either deal or investment you've been involved with.
1: Well, somewhere in, I don't know when it was, maybe it was 2001 or 2002, a guy came into my office, and um, he explained that he was a pill manufacturer, and right. that he he manufactured pills pursuant to somebody else's formula, and he was just a commodity player, but that his specialty was a product called or or a chemical called guaifenesin. Uh, Guaifenesin is an expectorant, and uh, you know when you think about it, expectorants, Robitussin, stuff like that. And uh, he explained to me that when the FDA was created in 1936, they had a problem, and the problem was, what do you do with grandfather drugs? And so they put a provision in the bill that said that, in effect grandfathered drugs did not have to be retested, but they were accepted just based on the fact they'd been around for 100 years or whatever. But that if you took a grandfathered formula and proved new efficacy, then the government would give you a monopoly on that effective use of of that compound. And he explained to me that, you know, the number one grandfather drug was aspirin, which made sense. And guaifenesin was number two. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to basically come up with a long-lasting version of guaifenesin. And I thought about it and I don't obviously know nothing about drug compounds and, you know, I'm a real estate guy or I'm a hard asset guy and here's some guy pitching me on drugs. And so I thought about it and I decided to back it. And so I put up the money and uh, we began the process of going through the FDA and doing drug trials. And eventually we succeeded. And we got the monopoly. We then named the product Mucinex, which, as you know, is uh, you know an enormously successful expectorant that we were able to. I mean, we—that was really—I couldn't believe how excited I was that we got approvals and we got a monopoly, and eventually took the company public, and then eventually sold the company. And it was, I don't know, a 10 or 20 bagger, I don't remember. But that was, you know, one of the most unique, you know, experiences I had as an investor. Uh, And when you ask the question, that's kind of the first thought that came to my mind.
0: I thought you were going to say they'd let you name it. You're like, Sam, what should we call this? And you're like, ah, I don't know, something about mucus,
1: mucinex, that's it. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I've always operated... I've always kept my ego out of everything I do.
0: Easy to say, hard to do.
1: Another another example of what you're asking was that in 1983, we were interested in purchasing a distributor of real estate products. At that time, there were a, a number of companies out there that syndicated real estate to the investors through the brokerage firms. And so we decided that we needed to be in that business because we were a big consumer of capital. And so we negotiated and finally found a company and agreed to buy it and agreed to the price and began the due diligence. And the guy in my shop that was responsible for doing the due diligence went to work and I was sitting at my desk one day and the phone rang and it was Barry. And I said, You know, hi, how are you? And he said, Sam, I've discovered something that's unbelievable. And I said, What's that? And he said, I'm down here in Florida. I'm doing the due diligence on the deal. And uh, I've discovered these mobile home parks. I said, Mobile home parks? He said, Yeah. I said, that's, you know, Marlon Brando and Stella and rolling cactus. And well, why would I want to touch something that was that far down the pike? And he said, Sam, you don't understand that there is a mobile home park business. that's very different from what the street or what the world expects. These are Age-limited communities. They're beautifully maintained. They're the typical story of the guy who sells his house in Buffalo and buys a mobile home park in uh, Sarasota. And uh, it's just a a wonderful business. And he proceeded to fill me in on the business. And I was stunned because I literally, here I am, one of the biggest real estate players in the country, and I never heard of it. And so we did We did our due diligence. We never bought the syndicator, but we bought the largest mobile home player in the country at a time when no one in the, quote, commercial real estate business owned mobile home parks to any extent. And uh, eventually we built the business up and took it public in 1993. And from 1993 to today that mobile home park REIT has been the most successful REIT in existence during something like an 18% compounded rate of return. Interestingly enough, the real reason that it did so well is because of not in my backyard. Going back to the great concept of competition, was basically it was extraordinarily difficult to get zoning. So if you had mobile home parks and you had them and maintained them, not the, the dusty place on the edge of town, but the crisp, clear, you know, clean place that, you know, established its own, you know, situation, we, we made a fortune. So those are kind of two examples of kind of out of the park investments that, you know, certainly weren't on my agenda.
0: Yeah, well, we should have started the conversation with these because I could listen to you tell stories about investments the whole time. I mean, I think it's so it's so interesting because it informs, you know, when when Sam Zell name is in my head, I think just purely real estate. But you mentioned like the story about Mucinex and kind of applying the same, you know, risk methodology. You just walked us through it. You're like, well, here's the steps. Like maybe you know, here's how I reduce the risk on thinking about it, right? I, I think that applies to really all of investing, all of life, really. But like, you know, you've now transitioned to being a majority non-real estate asset owner.
1: Yeah, because, you know, back in 1980, uh, we looked at the real commercial real estate world. And as I mentioned earlier, we saw taxes as becoming part of the quote-unquote value not as compensation for loss of liquidity, and by recognizing that we shifted to non-real estate activities. And today, seventy percent of our activities are non-real estate.
0: Yeah, you know, let me squeeze in one more question before we we let you into the evening. You know, you've been you've been involved in all sorts of deals, certainly uh, investing over your career, but also mm-hmm. in entrepreneurship. And all the agony and ecstasy of being an entrepreneur, we don't wish it upon anyone, but it's uh, one of the um, the most Americans of all pursuits. But, you know, you were, we got um, free markets and capitalism all over the world. You have been involved in, the, in Michigan, certainly with the education. And so let's say you get another phone call. It's Biden again. And he said, Sam, I'm not going to listen to you about the spending because that's crazy. I'm a politician. That's what I do. However, I believe in the mission of trying to educate, A, our youth on um, personal finance and investing, which we don't teach in school, in high school. There's like 15% of high school. I think it's actually up to like 20 or 30% now. It used to be 15%. He goes, tell me like some of the best learnings that you think, you know, a template on how we could really grow the teaching of this concept of both entrepreneurship and and Investing finance, too, but really make it um, broadly applicable. You got any good ideas for us?
1: Well, I've been very interested in entrepreneurship for a long time. I think I was interested in that area before it was called entrepreneurship. Um, My favorite story is that in 1979, I was sitting with the dean of the University of Michigan Business School And I had just read his curricula for the coming year. And I sat him down and I said, I just read, you know, all the courses that you're going to teach in the business school next year. And I never found the word entrepreneur. And I just couldn't believe how could a business school exist and grow and educate without understanding the role of the entrepreneur, the role of the risk taker, the role of the person who not only sees the problem, but sees the solution and is willing to take the risk to achieve that solution and the rewards that come with it. Ours is a capitalistic society that has grown as a result of entrepreneurship, as a result of of encouraging risk, as a result of encouraging people to, you know, follow their beliefs. Results have been, whether it be Steve Jobs or, you know, other entrepreneurial geniuses of our time, they've made a huge difference.
0: Yeah, I'm hopeful, though, the, the amount of uh, startups we've seen with sort of not only Y Combinator, but spreading across. It's almost like a template. But even I think the QSBS rules uh, that kind of were Obama-era legislation, I think has is, is done a lot to really get people interested in that world. And I, hopefully it'll continue. So there's no better education than actually trying to be an entrepreneur, whether you make it or not, <laughs> but at least getting out there. and
1: Remember, for an entrepreneur, the word failure doesn't exist. It just didn't work out. And you get up off the floor and try again.
0: My favorite example is we'll talk to startup founders and they'll say, look, you know, I was like, you understand the math, right? That, you know, whatever percent fail, but they have the amazing naivete, Say, but that's not going to be me, right? Every single one that's starting a company, but not going to be me.
1: It's not going to be me.
0: Sam, it's been a blessing. You have been a, a joy to listen to. I could do this all day. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: My pleasure, and I enjoyed it very much, and it was really interesting. Thank you.
0: If you ever make it out to Manhattan Beach, Sam, we'll buy you lunch. I know you just spent a little time up in Malibu. If you're ever in the neighborhood, come say hi. You got a deal. Thank you. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at com forward slash podcast.